0: And I can't really quite explain it, except that often um, th- that 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 it's an insight that has helped me enormously to realize that my life is not about just me, just me, this man here. It's about something of which I am also a part which is bigger than me. Now, that coheres with Christianity, historically, in all kinds of ways. But for some reason that I do not understand, it was given to people thousands of thousands of years ago in, I don't know, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, parts of India or something to understand that we are not who we appear to be, and I did, that was news to me. I thought I was who I appeared to be. That's I think that's my um that's my guess who mix on my iPhone now. <laughs> so I don't I don't I don't want to go into a big long deal on that. But what I what I talk about is that from the standpoint of the guy on the ceiling, I learned first if forgiveness isn't right, I am toast. I am toast. There's no way I can possibly begin to apologize for myself. Remember that song, uh, that that last movie that Jack Lemmon was in? What was it called? Defending Your Life? It's a terrible movie. It was directed by Blake Edwards, I think, or someone like that, and they were both obviously hugely secular people, although they were brilliant people. And uh, this guy, his whole life is defending his life, and in a way, that's (laughs) you can't do it. How can you even begin to defend your life, even if you're great? Even if you're terrific, and who is, you know, uh, you can't do it. So I had to have the assurance when I'm dying that that's not even relevant any longer. And the only way that can be is with this forgiveness. And secondly, I learned that there is this kind of dual self in me that makes me kind of detach. I had to kind of detach from just me. Because if it's just me, I'm just struggling. I'm fighting. I'm like the guy in the... Ever seen the remake of The Blob? <laughs> well you know the original blob was with Steve McQueen right? it was his first great movie it's a brilliant movie the remake of the blob the special effects are better and the blob comes out of the plumbing in the Church of the Advent kitchen the blob comes out of the plumbing and it gets your hand and it gets your whole body and it pulls you in this red thing and then the special effects show Paul or whoever it is stri- <laughs> surrounded by, by uh, red glue and uh, that's basically the story of one's life and uh, if if that's just me, You and Me Against the World, you know that song You and Me Against the World by Helen Reddy? Uh, if, if that's what it is, then 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 it then life is a lo- is a losing proposition. And I find that what, what struck all these retired men I would meet when I would be on Hilton Head, you know, and places like that, they all were that way. They were all walking around like zombies. They were all sort of, I mean, they were all saying, What was that about? I mean, what was my life about? You know, who the heck am I? You know, I used to be the chairman of the board of Centex. And I, now they don't even talk to me. Now they don't even care to talk to me. Now they don't even, now they don't even give me an office. And I was the chairman of the board. I was talking to a guy once who, uh, who was, I think he was the chairman of the board of some mammoth international company. And, uh, and uh, his company was bought by a slightly more mammoth international company. And his daughter turned to me and said, well, my dad's just uh, uh, just having the biggest yard sale of his life. You know what I mean? I mean, what, what, what is this? And so um, the, the, you, you, have to have, you have to be able to look at your life in such a way that you can separate yourself from yourself. So those are my points. Now I'm going to conclude with one other uh, point and then uh, read a prayer. I have a chapter on what I call uh, religions that are uh, religions that are uh, not called religions, and to me it 's so obvious, but I have to explain it there are uh, most people actually worship r- differently their religion is not the religion of the Episcopal Church, or uh, Orthodox Christianity, or um, Reformed Judaism, or Islam. For most people, their religion is what they spend their most time, most of their time, wanting. It's, it's what they—that's really the religion. And people say, "Well, that's not the same thing. That's not a belief system. That's not about God." And I say, "But it is." It is. There are people for whom a new pair of shoes is a religious thing. Why do I say that? Because that's all they're dreaming about and thinking about all the time. There are men for whom, uh, say, the the mental uh, uh, pictures involving sex are all consuming all of the time. When I was in college, the master of Elliot House, who was a distinguished classicist, one of the greatest scholars of Greek drama in the world, he said, my primary job is to get the young men of Elliot House to think about sex 40% of the time instead of 90% of the time. (laughs) That was his primary job. Now, what what he didn't say is, anything that you devote your inner life to, to that extent, functions as a religion because it's what you're thinking about. And it's also that thing which you will do anything to get. That's why you know it's a religion, because it's super serious. It's what you will do anything to get. So what I did is I took six things that are religions that we don't call religions, and I put them in a U.S. news, World, U.S. World News poll, and I, the, the magazine says six religions that are not called religions ranked in order, and I hope you'll enjoy it because maybe you'll see yourself in it. I'm going to read it to you. Power was the most is the most important religion that is not called a religion because people never stop wanting it. You can be almost dead and still exercise power over your children. You can be in your last moments and exercise power over your husband in some remarkable way. Half of the novels of George Eliot have to do with old people who are exercising mammoth power over their children in relation to what? Money. Money, 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 money. Can I have any money today, Ethel Merman? Money. So power, power. And there are people, I find many of these people. I know many, many of them. Many of them are in government. It's one of the reasons why really powerful people in government are not very ideological. They switch their ideological allegiances quite often because the power is more important than the ideas. So power, I say, has the longest shelf life of all religions that are not called religions and can be held from birth to death. Number two, and this is more for men, but it works for women, but in a slightly different format, is sex. It can be enjoyed from birth to almost death. (laughs) Have you ever read about Victor Hugo's Last Day on Earth? Google it. Google, Victor Hugo's Last Day on Earth. He was in his late 80s. And that's on, on the basis of Victor Hugo that I wrote that sex can be enjoyed from birth to almost death. Third, ideology. Ideology can be used to categorize categorize, and divide until you can't use your head anymore. Ideology is people who are really into social causes whether they're left-wing social causes or right-wing social causes. People who are really into ecology or not ecology, or they're really into one polarizing side of an issue or another or abortion or whatever. These are always categorized. They're not about me and you. They're about some group of people. And ideology can be used to divide until you start, until you get Alzheimer's. Four, family and children. Now, family and children, and why that that is actually low on the list, because when people get ready to die, interestingly enough, they only want one person. It's very interesting. We think that when we die, we want to be like John Wesley, you know what I mean? Surrounded by Mm -hmm. our beloved, because obviously I will predecease her because I want her when I'm dying, right? I want to predecease her. Tomorrow in my sermon, I talk about a famous man who had the shock of his life when this narcissistic creative man suddenly found out that his wife died before him because he had expected his wife to be Miss Wonderful while he was dying. didn't really matter about her. And the thing about, I say, a family and children are great, but at the very end, people can only receive it from one person because you're too groggy. You can only receive it from one person. Think about that. Five, fame. People always like to be appreciated, but the older you get, the more you forget how famous you once were. As in, I used to be James Polk. Uh, You know what I mean? I mean, I used to be Warren Harding. You know, I mean, so fame is great, but I find that people who are famous tend to be okay in old age because they begin to see how absurd it is. You know, do you remember the Hansons? Remember the Hansons? Well, just think about it. Right there, just think about the Hansons. I mean, uh, you know, we—I know Angelina Jolie is remarkably has a wonderful doctor, but um, (laughs) uh, it's—it's—it's at at a certain point she's going to probably get better, you know, because she's going to see how ridiculous all this was. Uh, Things, and finally, interestingly enough, possessions. These get old the moment you get them. They have the shortest shelf life. So that's my U.S. News and Report. Now, finally, and I'm going to close and then take some questions, um, I want to um, read to you um, what what happened to me. I talked about it in the sermon today. I had a kind of a religious experience. Mary was with me. It's rare that one has the privilege of experiencing something that sort of awesome in the company of someone else, but I had one other experience uh, last May, which um, made me uh, realize that life really realize that life continued after death. Not say I thought it continued after death, or not claim that it... Con- said, or in my father's house are many mansions. I was much more likely to say, but how How shall we know, Lord? You know, <laughs> How do we know? Uh, but I did have something happen to me personally that, that answered that question, just because it, it was so vivid. But I want to um, finish. I conclude my book on the nearly dead guy, and I composed a prayer. I worked on this prayer for a year. This is the climax of the book. And I kept working on it, and it wasn't right. And at this point, it feels... Like, that's pretty lame. At this point, it, whenever I read it, I've, I could pray it. I, I can say this prayer. I often feel I'm like the priest at the end of The Exorcist, if you've seen The Exorcist. And there's a, one priest is dying, and another priest comes and gives him... It's called the Viaticum. The viaticum is what Roman Catholic priests say when you are dying. You know, ego absolvete, et cetera, et cetera, on your journey. It's a sort of Christian Catholic form of the Aztec thing, you know, on your journey, Apocalypto, <laughs> on your journey. But, but I wanted to write, what would I say to, 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 to you? What would I want said to myself in this situation where I really have very little time and my I'm beginning to harden up I can't quite hear very well, my vision is very heavily clouded, and I am losing a sense of of sensation in the rest of my body. I'm sort of like Socrates, remember when Socrates was dying? They kept asking, how do you feel now? (laughs) And this actually happens in the Phaedo, and and Socrates is dying, and Plato says, how are you feeling now? And he says, well, I've lost lost sensation because of the hemlock poison. I can't feel anything below my knee. And now I can't feel anything below my elbow. Or Robert Duvall in that Western, uh, uh, what's it called? Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. He's dying because he's dying. And he, li- he can't feel anything here and here. And that's this person. I'm, I'm that person. I'm beginning to, I'm really going out. And I need to hear something desperately that will um, tell me, uh, uh, that will comfort me, that will reassure me. And that will give me um, that will give me hope in the truest sense. And this is the prayer that I wrote. I wrote it, but I've, 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 it's, it says what I honestly felt I'd come to. You are on. And it's on page 198. You are on your way, dear friend. What you just left is behind you now. You can leave it there. God will take care of it all. Together with the people you loved so much, there was one especially. You are going to where you will always be understood. Nothing you ever did and nothing you ever suffered was not understood. Every trip and every kiss was part of the plan. You are going to fly through that windshield that separates from you from God. You are going straight there in the blink of an eye. Listen, perfect love casts out fear, and that was the that's the climax of this book uh, that I wrote about um, the um, the final moments of a human being as I had both experienced it in a dramatic uh, and dreadful professional situation, and where I had also seen it with many people for whom I cared very, very much, including people who are right uh, in this uh, world in which we are um, here in Birmingham. Now, maybe uh, time for a few questions. Um, what do you think, Gil? That's great. great. And I was just kidding, Gil. You know, I feel guilty that I'm kidding you. But for some reason, you it's so affectionate. Um, now, um... <laughs> um the haircut you can lose the haircut now um, <laughs> now uh now let's uh I was having lunch with a guy in Birmingham the other day, he's not here tonight, and he was a very, very wise man, and he was saying, he was saying, well now I just want to say, I've been thinking about you, and I, I just want to say, now remember, a true friend is, he was much older than I, I, said, a true friend is someone who really loves you enough to tell you the truth. And I said, oh no. <laughs> ah, what's coming next? So you know, what I really translate, a true enemy, is someone who tells you the truth at lunch. But anyway, I'm... Um, <laughs> Um, uh, c- 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 comments or or questions, Jim Palmer? Uh, Flannery, what you said reminds me of what something Flannery O'Connor said. She said it's an extreme situation that shows us what we are essentially, like the grandmother, uh, you know, living uh, hard to find. You know, facing misfit, and she about to die, and she realizing manners and all that stuff doesn't matter, and she just reaches out with love to that, that killer and realizes just what a horrible childhood he had. And it's just like facing death, just clears your head, and you just realize what you are, essentially. And she said, because that's all you can take to heaven with. You. So all the other riffraff just gets tossed out in a second. Do you believe that? I mean, do you, did that make sense to you when you read it? That's in A Good Man is Hard to Find yes. by Flannery O'Connor. Thank you, Jim. Bobby, you say something about Baby driver. What did I mean by baby driver? Baby driver, uh, uh, sometimes somebody really got in my case the other day and said, you know, your book is very interesting and I've gotten a lot out of it, but stop all the illustrations from rock and roll. And, this, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, no, 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 no. You're the wrong generation. These old songs have a new life because of the Internet. Anyway, maybe I was wrong. Baby Driver is a reference to a song on Simon and Garfunkel's 1969 album called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Now, who here knows the song Bridge Over Troubled Waters? Well, I mean, everybody knows, has heard that song. Some Aretha Franklin did a cover. That was the second number one time. But... Um, Baby Driver is just a song by, they call me Baby Driver, and it's a Paul Simon wonderful song. Baby Driver is the Paul Zoll I was talking about, who's driving me to think that I'm really who I am. Now, let me read you something. Let me read you something. Somebody that had a great influence on me, Baby Driver was my way of saying the ego, what psychologists call the ego, what Roman Catholics call, the, the mystics call, the false self. And what I had um, come to believe was this guy who's struggling against life all the time. I mean, I'm not, I don't know about you, but I'm just the kind of person who's fighting. I'm fighting. I mean, I may not appear that way, but inside myself, I am fighting. And the person that best expressed what Baby Driver is, is Christopher Isherwood. Now, Christopher Isherwood was a um, was a very uh, 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 active novelist in Los Angeles from England. And he, uh, I won't talk about him, but he's worth studying. And he was a very wildly, sensually, uh, all-over-the-place young man from a very educated background in England who hit the wall. He hit the wall in a relationship. And he was open to Christi- to religion, but it couldn't be Christianity because he'd gone to a prep school that was aggressively Christian, and because his mom always wanted him to go to church. And so he said, I will be anything but a Christian, which is, of course, a very unfortunate position. But he did discover a little bit of this thing about the self. And I want to read what he says. This is Christopher Isherwood wrote this in 1945, but he discovered it in 1936. In my desperation... No, he says, how am I I am ready to assume that God, my essential nature, does exist within me and does offer me a lasting strength, wisdom, peace, and happiness? How am I to realize this? Answer, by ceasing to be yourself. What do you mean? How can I stop being Christopher Isherwood? I'm either Christopher Isherwood or I'm nothing. So how do I stop being Christopher Isherwood? And this is the key paragraph, by ceasing to believe that you are. What is this belief? Egotism. That's the way he would have said it. Egotism. Nothing else. An egotism which is asserted and reinforced by hundreds of your daily actions. Every time you desire, fear, or hate. Every time you boast or indulge your vanity. Every time you struggle to get something for yourself, you are really asserting I am a separate, unique individual. I stand apart from everything else in the universe. And Christopher Isherwood believed that that was the birth of all tragic resistance to life. Now, that's a very big idea, you know, but it's, uh, he says it really well. You sort of read. It. I mean, I know Isherwood has a very big reputation for something else. His partner, uh, his male partner for many years, was a guy named Don Basharty, and I don't want to get into that issue at all. But uh, <laughs> Don Bisardy, I had the most amazing experience. Don Bisardy is a very famous Hollywood painter, and he was with Christopher Isherwood for like 40 years. And Don Bisardy painted my sister. I couldn't believe it. And my sister said, oh, yeah, Don Basharty painted my portrait. I said, are you kidding? You know, I am not worthy to untie your latch of your shoes. You know, <laughs> Alice Cooper in uh, Wayne's World. My sister got painted by Don Bouchardy. Unbelievable. Now, anything else? Other thoughts? Yes. I'm pretty sure you can't answer this in, in 30 seconds, but how do you reconcile the, make up the word, the superfluousness of our daily existence, Yes. Um, with the realization of that interchange, where do you go from here? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Mary, do you want to say anything about that? Oh, no, I have. I ha- <laughs> <laughs> um, Herr Ashton, could you bring me a glass of water? Well, I want to say something about that. It's that, that how do you reconcile the, if I'm right, I mean, I may be right, totally wrong, right? how do you reconcile this sense that, that daily life, much of daily life, thank you very much, is sort of just repetitive theater, repetitive theater, that much of what we do is just, it's just absurd. I mean, 90% of the things, you know what I'm really worried about most of the time? We're printing out boarding passes. I mean, I just freak <laughs> out About the question, where and how are we going to print out a boarding pass? You know, because maybe my app isn't working. You know, I have my app. And what if my app, I have to log in again on Delta Airlines and asks me for some number that is back home and I can't get a boarding pass? And what, of course, is going to happen? I'm going to not get through security and I'm going to miss my flight and I will die. So this is so what? So. What I'm trying to say is this is what a lot of people spend a lot of their time thinking about. How am I going to live, just get out of here tomorrow? What am I going to do? How am I going to do whatever I do? And so um, the uh, uh, question is, um, you know what you basically have to do in a very real sense? You have to realize that the monks were basically right. Now, I'm not saying we have to go into monasteries. You know, as I used to say, and I still say, well, I'm a Protestant. But um, <laughs> you, you, you don't, you, 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 we're not saying that. But at a certain level, you have to kind of wake up and see that a tremendous amount of what you are being told is significant is empty theater. I, use, I don't mean, not evil. But it's sort of theater, it's, uh, and it's anxiety. How many things do we worry about that are just so... Now, you're probably much less troubled than I am as a person, but I find myself worrying about so many things. And so... Um, My sister turned to me once, I used to say this at the Advent, because I crunch grapes. When I eat grapes, I crunch the seeds. And she said, Paul, your personal habits are alienating everybody. Um, but, But you think about these things, and so what you want to say to yourself, you have to basically say, you actually come to a very heavy point, Frau Lyman. you come to a very heavy point, when you say, basically, in a way, you have to turn your back on the significance of your life. It doesn't mean you have to turn your back on your life. But you have to turn your back on the emotion that it has significance. Now, let me say something about that, if I may. And we've got plenty of time, and I'll sign books. It'll be really great. Um, uh, But I, um, you, you, um, Luther, Luther said this. Luther said this. This is very deeply in Christian history. Luther said that most vocations, most professions are for the birds. It wasn't just, you know, the Buddha taught that, but forget that. Luther said, most professions are for the birds, specifically the military profession, although there were soldiers in Luther's time. And uh, the, this is always attracts too much bad vibes in Birmingham, but he specifically didn't like the profession of the law. That's just Luther, but uh, because it, he, had the, he had theological reasons, he had theological reasons for being that. He he detested any kind of of, of, of professions that had to do with the acquisition of wealth for its own sake. Is it just Luther wrote this? So they would say to Luther, "Well, what is it? What, what can we do? We have to earn a living, right? We've got wives, children, and parents to support." But he believed the same thing. Tolstoy came to Tolstoy believed this, but Luther believed it better, more deeply. He said, "Well." You should, basically, you have to realize that whatever you do is symbolic. It's not really important in itself. You're just doing it to sort of mark time and make enough money to live properly. Now, again, not everybody has to agree with this, obviously. A shoemaker, a barber, a farmer, a tiller of the soil, a leather maker, a clothes maker, but not a hat maker. Uh, he, he went down the list. He said, basically, honest... Occupations, a gardener, he loved gardeners because of Adam and Eve, a gardener, <laughs> uh, as people that work with their hands, a pastors, he, he had a very high regard for clergy, uh, um, certain clergy, uh, and, uh, you, um, you, 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 anything that you do, honest labor with your hands, that is, and never usury, never anything that has to do with interest. You know, never interest. Never, no, no financial work that has to do with interest. And he listed them, and they said, "Well, why do you say that?" He said, "Because these these allow you to make a living without focusing on the results as much. They they are simple jobs." Now, whatever you think, you sort of have to turn your back on just about everything that you think is important about what you were doing. Now, I know that's a heavy thought, but um, that's what he taught. Have I expressed that? Would you want to indicate anything else? Any subheading on that, Mary? Um, <laughs> the when you said earlier, the significance of it. Yes. If you, ad- if, if you choose a profession on the basis of believing that the profession is an end in itself, you are bound to make it kind of a religion. And this is the great era of men. No, but what? Oh, motherhood is a classic. Women are religious about their children. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that men aren't, but really women are. Women, no, let's put it this way. People get very mad when I say that. I didn't say it, by the way. I did not say that. But I, it is possible to make your children into a god. It is just possible. Men do it too. But I find that's a characteristic. And if you make, what the great terrible thing about making children into your religion is that they can only disappoint you because they're not god. And B, if you make someone into god, they will want to disappoint you. They will be. They will spend their entire. Uh, I think Gill said this once so brilliantly to me. He said, "Teenage the parents don't realize that the entire reason for being a teenager is to get your parents upset, <laughs> and not anybody else. They're not here to get the Mountain Brook Police Department upset. They're to get you upset by means of the Mountain Brook Police Department." <laughs> so anyway, the man's a radical turning. I've had a very big problem. I've had to. I've had to say, you know, all. Uh, all I, I used to have Christian clergymen say, Paul, well, you know, ambition is not a bad thing for a Christian. It's good to want to do great things for God. It's good to want to have a great church where you can do great things with a lot of people and meaningful. And I realized that was total hoo-ha, because that was just a cover. That was a rationalization for what I would call ambition. Now there may be situations where you can enjoy getting a good job where you can do some good. But the moment you make it the moment you start coveting some post, you know, some position, you're 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 making it a Willie Loman in uh, and what does he do to what does Willie Loman do, who's made his life, his work, his life, and I'm 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 a Willie Loman. I hope I'm not as much as I was. What did, what does Willie Loman do at the end of the movie? I mean at the end of the play. What? He plants, carrots, Yeah, yeah but what does he also do? Yeah, he goes completely crazy, and somebody else kills himself, don't they, in, in connection with that? He drives his sons to distraction, and he goes completely insane. So um, that's what I'm trying to avoid <laughs> happening. Uh, maybe maybe two more questions, uh, and then I'll, I'll stop. Yes? I noticed that you said that the most significant thing that Christianity can offer the world is the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus Christ. Yes and I sometimes struggle well I always struggle as the person you described I'm always struggling against the world but um, if the promise uh, of eternal life is there uh, wouldn't that be the answer to the human dilemma in that life is tough as long as we're here and then we do die and isn't that the the greatest thing that could possibly be, if that's true. I, yes, it is. it is, it is But, but uh, yes, uh, absolutely yes. Um, what I want to say about that, and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. The title of my sermon tomorrow is, Is There Life After Death? a <laughs> little subject, but that's the subject of tomorrow's sermon. Um, what I want to say is that um, what I have often, that is, while I completely believe that, that has to be something that actually means something to me now. And what I've often found is when push comes to shove in a person's life and they're actually faced with death as opposed to just putatively faced with death or theoretically faced with death, when they're actually faced to death, faced to die, even wonderful Christian people completely melt down or totally lose all hope even though they have believed with their minds for years and years the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, which I share. But I've seen time and time again, even very devout evangelical Christians, when they actually found out that, the, that it had come to them, they just freak, and it means nothing. I mean, read about the death of Paul Tillich, if you really want to read of a harrowing story, and I've known so many people who kind of melted down, and that meant what that meant was that their ideas about heaven were primarily mental, and it has to be an emotional truth. And the emotional truth often comes from a sense of belovedness and a sense of forgi- being forgiven and a certain sense of detachment that allows you to um, to accept this thing and to um, to not let it absolutely undo your peace. I was with someone in Northern Ireland. I'll never forget it. She was one of the most devout Christians and wonderful Christian women I had ever known and I knew her really well. And when she suddenly found out she had two weeks to live because of an advanced, metastasized, incredibly invasive, untreated cancer, she became a different person. Just absolute, total despair. And I kept saying to myself, how can this be? This woman is a pious, wonderful Bible-believing woman. No judgment on her. All this meant was that things in her head had not come here. And what it basically boiled down to her, thank God, she had a daughter who loved her, and she had a husband who loved her. And they mediated. And they were Christians. One more question. Lella. Uh, I want to know your opinion about these mega churches. Um, Joel Osteen, all these people. And they... I, that's not really the kind of... Uh, it's a religion to those who listen, but doesn't have Christ. Well, what I would say is they're terrible. No, <laughs> 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 let, let let me just say that, and that'll be my last. Mary, oh, I thought you were going to say something. Okay. What I want to say is about mega churches, I personally don't, I mean, I have no stones to throw at anyone like that. But what seems to happen with these mega churches, when you actually listen to what the pastor is actually saying, it's almost always the same old thing, which is basically a form of the law. It's all basically a form of performance. And it's basically a kind of, um, I would say, uh, a kind of an artificial uh, kind of, it, it's not all that going deep to the heart of pain. Um, that's why I want to talk about near-death experiences. But I'm, uh, I've always felt that the advent, when the preaching was rooted in the gospel, which as long as I've known it has been the case, and, uh, and that goes way back to long before I ever was here. Uh, and when uh, the, the context of that extraordinarily, I went into the church a half an hour before I preached today, and there was something so wonderful about being quiet in that beautiful church, um, and holy, without wanting to sound dumb, holy in that place, and the gospel, and then that incredible music that touches me very deeply, and the prayer book tradition, provided it's not too modern, um, that there is something so wonderful about that. I said to myself, oh, if only we could go. I mean, Mary and I can't go to church, because every church we go to is fiddling around. I mean, it's sort of... No, don't... don't. We, I'll tell you, there's a happy answer to that one. Because every church we go to is right nine Holy Eucharist. Morning prayer? Are you kidding? What is morning prayer? But that's not my issue. But it's, it's always right nine and eight million announcements about nothing and uh, no sense of verticality and it's all hell fellow well met and the peace just drives me crazy. How, how can I fake an embrace to somebody I've never met before? You know, oh, I just love you so much. Who are you? You know what I mean? I, remember that song? that old rock and roll song What's Your Name? You know the guy has a bad relationship with a girl because of a rock and roll he wakes up in the morning and says What's Your Name? Well that's what I think the piece is. Who are you? <laughs> now the piece, the piece might be good if you knew the people. So thank God we found All Saints Episcopal Church in Winter Park at the early service, 7.30 in the morning, I feel like I used to be at the Advent, but now I'm sitting in the pew, and this lovely clergyman comes in, and he uses the old service, and he doesn't say, good morning. If I ever hear good, a priest starting the service, good morning, I think I will go to Disneyland for <laughs> hell. <health. laughs> good morning. And I, he says, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, and you had the colic for purity and the prayer for humble access, and I'm in heaven. And he happens to be a nice person. So anyway, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Thank you, thank you so much for listening. Uh, And if you want me to uh, sign a book or something like that, I'll be right here. And let's hear it for uh, Lauren and Andrew Pearson. Thank you all. Thank you all. See you. See you tomorrow if you're around.